0: Welcome back to the stronger by science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm the host of the show. But today I am going to be joined by a special temporary guest co host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: No problem. We have a bunch of stuff to get to in this episode. We're going to do a uh, Quite a few listener questions. I'm also going to talk a little bit about protein digestion speed, um, kind of clarify things I alluded to in our most recent episode. But before we get to all that, um, if you are interested in supporting the show, there are many ways to do it. Of course, you could like, rate, and subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts like this one. You could use our discount code at BulkSupplements.com. Our code is SBSPOD, and that gets you a 5% discount off of your entire order. Uh, Other ways you could support the show would be by subscribing to the Mass Research Review, which we both write every month, along with uh, Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Mike Zordos. And you could also subscribe to Macrofactor, which is the diet app that we designed with a talented team of developers and uh if you're not sure if it's going to be the right app for you we do offer a free trial so you can try it out see if you like it and stick around if you do okay moving on to the content for this week's episode um last week we were talking a little bit about protein uh, it's uh definitely a fan favorite topic um one of the nutrition variables that people most enjoy talking about and manipulating in their diet, and, and for good reason. Protein obviously is very important to what we're trying to do, whether you're trying to uh, lose some body fat, you know, build muscle, uh, increase your strength, increase your performance, recover better from training. Protein is one of those dietary variables that, that you certainly want to be mindful of. So, I was talking a little bit about uh, protein intake right before bed, Um, and it's it's become really common in the last decade or so to say, hey, you really have to get some protein in right before bed so that you're building muscle overnight as you sleep. And in last week's episode, I talked about the research uh, looking at pre-bed protein supplementation. And in reality, um, based on the evidence we have currently, it looks like before bed is an excellent time to, to get some protein in, but it doesn't seem to be uh, particularly special. It doesn't look like you are really leaving gains on the table if you finish all your protein earlier in the day, but you're still spreading it out throughout the day, at least an eight-hour feeding window, at least three large doses of protein throughout the day. If you're getting enough total protein and spreading it out kind of and getting at least a few servings per day, it doesn't look like it's absolutely imperative to have protein right before bed. Uh, But in the context of having that conversation, um, I I mentioned that casein before bed isn't quite as special as people sometimes lead you to believe. Uh, Well-intentioned people, you know, it's kind of a, a really common recommendation is before bed get some casein because casein digests really slowly it's absorbed very slowly so therefore it's going to have a more favorable uh response in terms of blood amino acid levels and therefore protein synthesis and therefore muscle building that's kind of the common recommendation but uh I mentioned that that whole line of logic just didn't make a lot of sense to me um but I also mentioned that casein itself isn't really that slow when you look at other proteins in terms of its digestion and absorption speed. So I wanted to take a moment in this week's episode to talk a little bit more about protein digestion speed. And what I'm talking about here is digestion and absorption, which are two different processes, but I'm just going to refer to them. I'm going to lump them together and talk about digestion speed, but I wanted to acknowledge that on the front end. I'm talking about the rate at which a dietary protein source is digested and absorbed, and then you know, ultimately, we're talking about the rate at which blood amino acid levels are increasing. So um, there's a lot of there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, what exactly that information tells us related to muscle building. I think it's really intuitive to assume that we should or can, Really, micromanage those blood amino acid responses in a way that can be more favorable. You know, I think it's uh, a particular variable that people like to think about manipulating very carefully and saying, okay, I'm going to peak blood amino acid levels at this time, that time, that time, and that time. And therefore, I've optimized my protein for the day. So, First, before we get into what can and cannot be achieved, I think it's important to talk about just like the the general conceptual model of what we're doing when we eat protein. So, we ingest protein that ideally is going to contain some amount of leucine and some amount of essential amino acids. As a result of that, we're going to have increased leucine levels in our blood, um, and leucine obviously triggers muscle protein synthesis. It's a really key amino acid that initiates that response in muscle. So leucine, very, very important. Uh, At the same time, we're also going to have an increase in the blood levels of essential amino acids. And they're important because they enable the synthesis of new muscle proteins. So what we need is uh, we we eat some protein. We need blood levels of leucine and essential amino acids to go up, so that the muscle gets the signal to start building and, and synthesizing new proteins. And we need the essential amino acids to be there in sufficient quantities, so that we can actually build those proteins. Now, this response here, where we consume protein and we start synthesizing new proteins uh, in the muscle, uh, this this protein synthesis response is maximized for a brief time and then it goes back down and it needs to be re-stimulated and over time uh, positive balance between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown is ultimately going to lead to hypertrophy. So that is the basic idea of how protein ingestion relates to blood amino acid levels which relates to building proteins in, in our muscle and ultimately building muscle over time. So when you lay out the process like that, it seems really intuitive to assume that, that we need to really micromanage these variables, have these very targeted spikes in leucine levels and essential amino acid levels, um, and, and that if you compare blood responses of amino acids, you should therefore be comparing how well these things are, are supporting uh, hypertrophy, in, in a sense. Uh, there was one study that was really fascinating. Um, You know, one of the most common uh, conversations or debates in in the protein world is animal-based proteins versus plant-based proteins. And there was a study by Brennan and colleagues um, where they compared four different protein sources. So one of them was whey protein, uh, kind of the the gold standard when it comes to promoting muscle protein synthesis, a very, very uh, high-performing protein in that context. And they were comparing three different uh, kind of test products. These were formulations that were different blends of pea protein and pumpkin protein and sunflower and coconut protein, uh, just kind of multi-plant blend. And they had three different versions that they were testing. What's really interesting about this study is that all four treatments had the same leucine content, so 2.6 grams per serving. Uh, they had the same protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, uh, which was 1.0 because, ulti- you know, we're comparing to whey protein. Uh, and they had the same content of total essential amino acids. Those are that those raw materials to actually synthesize new muscle proteins. Uh, and so in order to make all that stuff work, the plant-based protein blends ultimately had a higher absolute dose. So in order to match them with whey, It was about 33 or 34 grams of these plant-based proteins uh, being compared to 24 grams of whey. Now, what they found was that the whey protein, uh, compared to the other three plant protein blends, resulted in greater peak and area under curve values for uh, essential amino acids in blood and also leucine levels in blood. So basically, the whey protein was causing these really large, fairly rapid spikes in leucine and essential amino acids when compared to these plant proteins. And so, a very intuitive conclusion would be, you know, that's probably not great. You know, that's not a great sign for these plant proteins. Perhaps they're not as good for initiating muscle protein synthesis, and by extension, perhaps they're not as good for building, you know, new muscle over time. But it's really important to recognize that um, blood amino acid responses are not a perfect proxy for muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and be going beyond that, muscle protein synthesis is not a perfect proxy for actually building muscle over time. For lean mass gains or uh, you know, increased muscle cross-sectional area over time. Uh, and so one of the things that's really important to keep in mind uh, is that it doesn't take a very high peak if you're trying to max out this muscle protein synthesis response. I mean, you, you do need to, you know, get more leucine and more essential amino acids in the blood to, to kind of initiate and maximize this response. But we can't always say that a, a more rapid response or a greater peak is necessarily better for muscle protein synthesis. And a secondary point that's important to consider is that the time course of muscle protein synthesis does not perfectly mirror the time course of blood amino acid responses. So um, there's a, a really great article online by Jorn Tromelin, Dr. Jorn Tromelin. Um, ah, I forget. What is, is it nutritiontactics.com? Yeah. Is that his website? So he's got a great... Uh, it's this huge article about muscle protein synthesis. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. I'm blanking on the exact title of the article. Um, but in it, he talks about the muscle full effect. Uh, and generally speaking, I, I think
1: it's just called something like a complete guide to muscle protein. Synthesis. Yeah, something that, that like
0: sounds, that. yeah, that sounds right. Um, but I'll link it in the show notes, but he talks about the muscle full effect. And, uh, basically after we consume protein, there's a lag period about 45 to 90 minutes, even if there's a really rapid spike in blood amino acid levels, uh, there's this little lag time. And then muscle protein synthesis goes up and it peaks somewhere between 90 to 120 minutes. uh, And then muscle protein synthesis rates return to baseline after that time point, even if amino acid levels are still elevated in the blood. So what you see is temporally, there's not this kind of perfect mirroring where we can manipulate amino acid uh, responses and thereby manipulate muscle protein synthesis responses. These two things are disconnected. Um, so what we are trying to do with a protein serving is not micromanage the digestion and absorption rates so we can micromanage those, uh, you know, amino acid responses in blood. We're just trying to make sure that for this protein feeding opportunity, we have enough leucine, enough essential amino acids, uh, with reasonably good digestibility so that we will achieve basically a maximal or near maximal peak you know, so we can initiate this process. Um, now, another thing that that's really interesting, sometimes you'll see comparisons of fast versus slow protein. And a question is, you know, w- we know that they're going to have different uh, responses in terms of, you know, the, the time course for leucine going up and down in the blood or essential amino acids going up and down in the blood. But uh, another interesting set of questions is, forget those differences. Just comparing protein synthesis rates. Are fast proteins better than slow proteins in terms of their digestion rate? Uh, Or looking at hypertrophy over time. Are fast proteins better or worse than slow proteins? Um, What's really interesting, though, is uh, you have to be really careful as you go through this research. There is a a really nice uh, review article by Wittard and colleagues where they were looking at comparing faster proteins versus slower proteins, really whey protein versus others. Mm -hmm. And whey protein in a certain collection of studies looked to be much better for stimulating muscle protein synthesis. But a key issue there was uh, how long the actual measurement period was. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to look into the research and find areas where people say, oh yeah, whey protein outperforms slower protein's cut and dry, very simple, very straightforward. But it's usually in studies where they only measure protein synthesis rates for a period of four hours or fewer. Mm -hmm. So a very short time frame. When you start looking at studies that are like five hours, six hours or more, those differences between fast and slow proteins start to look uh, much smaller. They start to look very similar in terms of their Capability to, uh, to promote muscle protein synthesis over extended time frames.. Yeah. So there are a, a few studies, um, not as many as you'd think, honestly, but there are a few studies looking at fast versus slow proteins, um, uh, looking at, you, know, actual longitudinal outcomes. So like I said, amino acid responses don't tell us everything about muscle protein synthesis rates, and muscle protein synthesis rates don't tell us everything about building muscle over time longitudinally. So there was a study by Wilborn and colleagues, which I'll link in the, I'll link these studies in the show notes, but they looked at pre and post-exercise supplementation with whey or casein, looking at body composition changes over time in female collegiate athletes. And the short version of the results is there was really no difference, no no substantial difference between whey or casein, uh, looking at longitudinal changes in body composition over time. Um, There's another study by Fabre and colleagues where they were looking at uh, basically trying to find an optimal ratio between fast and slow protein. So what they would do is take, uh, I I think they were looking at different combinations of whey protein and either milk protein or casein protein, but they were basically kind of taking whey as the example of a fast protein and cutting it with different amounts of slower proteins to Mm -hmm. manipulate the digestion rate. Uh, and And what they found was... Whichever way you went, with you know, fast, medium, slow, in the long run, it just didn't really seem to matter that much. Uh, but but this is all talking about kind of the milk based spectrum of proteins, like whey, milk protein, casein. Um, but I, I mentioned in the last episode that casein isn't actually that slow in, in the grand scheme of thing when you look at other um, other protein sources. So I've got a table here from a paper by. Oh, man, I'm blanking on the name, but I'll link this paper in the show notes as well. Um, Billsborough is the first first author for sure. But they have a nice little table here uh, that shows the uh, approximate uh, absorption rate for different protein sources, and they've got the individual references. And it's really surprisingly hard to track this information down. You you have to kind of go study by study looking at individual proteins. This is One of the only reviews I'm aware of that really lays it out uh, really clearly with several different protein sources. Um, But so, for example, uh, whey isolate in this table, the absorption rate is 8 to 10 grams per hour. Um, Casein isolate is 6.1 grams per hour. So uh, those are actually like pretty
1: pretty fast compared to the rest of the field so yeah they're they're the two fastest uh like complete proteins like not just like various free amino acid profiles on this table
0: right and i I try not to treat this table as like uh set in stone because anytime you're looking at absorption rates there are so many contextual factors to keep in mind uh cooking process uh or, or cooking um how the protein was cooked, uh, how the specific product was processed, like how it was, uh, the the context in which it was delivered in the Mm -hmm. study. There's a lot that can go into, uh, modulating the absorption rate, but, And,
1: and it's not a fully comprehensive table. It's, it's eight different protein sources and then two different blends of free amino acids. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, but, but just to kind of contextualize it, like, this table lists uh, soy protein isolate as 3.9 grams per hour. It lists uh, uh, raw egg protein as 1.3 grams per hour. As I alluded to, cooking can facilitate that digestion pretty considerably, uh, but even cooked egg protein is listed as 2.8 grams per hour. And again, we're talking about casein being listed at 6.1. So we view casein as a it's very uh, natural to assume that it's this extremely slowly absorbed protein just because of the way it's discussed in the industry. But th- what they're really doing is looking at, okay, we've got of the milk proteins, we've got the whey fraction and casein. Uh, which one is slower of the two? That That's why they're kind of going with casein so much is uh, they're kind of restricting their so- themselves to... Uh, the milk-based protein spectrum, but casein is certainly not an outlier in terms of a super slow digestion rate. Um, so that kind of begs the question: you know, maybe these studies that I mentioned previously on fast and slow proteins, maybe there were no differences because we're talking about a very fast protein and a still kind of fast-ish protein,
1: right? Yeah. Um, Actually, Eric, but before we move on, looking at this table. I have a question that's slightly out of left field. Okay. So this table is listing absorption rates in grams per hour, and it goes from 1.3 for raw egg protein to 8 to 10 for whey isolate. Uh, but, you know, a, a, fair, a fair number of the proteins seem to be kind of clustered in the 3 to 4.5 uh, grams per hour range. So I, I'm having a hard time squaring that with just like general protein recommendations for just, you know, like trying to get 1.6 grams per kilo or whatever. Uh, cause like 3.5 grams per hour absorption rate would imply that you were only able to absorb about 84 grams of protein per day. Uh, and, and, you know, several of these seem to be kind of clustered around there. Um, like how, how is that circle squared? Uh, like do, does that imply that maybe the absorption rate data is slightly imprecise, like underestimating what the absorption rates could be? Uh, cause like my, my understanding is that there's really no upper level of how much protein you can absorb and use, uh. Like within a meal, or or even within like a day, uh, within reason. So how 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 does that all kind of work out?
0: Yeah, I'd have to look into the quantification method for these absorption rates. Um, that's that's kind of why I couched the uh, or I I had the caveat for this table of like, you know, let's let's not look into the numbers as set in stone, super literal, and then try to build out uh, kind of mechanistic explanations from there. I view this table as more of directionality, you mm-hmm. know, so so kind of setting these, um, not taking the number as a literal value to build daily protein uh, recommendations from, but to look at comparing this protein versus that protein, which is faster, which is slower. I, I think we can definitely use it for that type of comparison purpose. Gotcha. Um, so ultimately, what I'm trying to do here is kind of set a spectrum that that shows that slow proteins are not anchored by casein. There are many dietary proteins that are digested and absorbed uh, more slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, you know, the nitty gritty of how we use those absorption speed numbers and extrapolate those to daily uh, protein recommendations, that would take considerably more homework. Um, but ultimately, we would be trying to... Um, we would be trying to work our way to a conclusion that we already know Mm -hmm. we're just trying to basically make the numbers feel better because Mm -hmm. as you alluded to uh we know that humans can absorb uh considerable amounts of protein throughout the day uh numbers that certainly exceed what would look like the upper end of what we see in these particular numbers so we would be trying to uh like you said kind of make the square peg fit into into the round hole there or vice versa but um but ultimately we know that protein absorption generally takes care of itself in a healthy individual with no gastrointestinal issues. So um, yeah, I'd have to look into the exact quantification details for that. Fair enough. But anyway, uh, you know, casein, not an unusually slow protein, but even when we look at comparisons between, uh, you know, slower proteins um, and their less slow counterparts. So for example, there have been studies looking at whole egg, which is a pretty slow absorbing protein, and comparing whole eggs to isonitrogenous amounts of egg whites. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know of any bodybuilder who has really been concerned that eggs are not a quality protein source. I mean, they've been a staple in the bodybuilding diet for as long as... I mean... It, it It's as old as time, the, the method of using eggs for uh, for bodybuilding purposes. So mm-hmm. um, anecdotally, I think the, the position of eggs in the protein hierarchy is well established. But uh, y- you might consider, you know, based on, you know, trying to get these maximized really rapid peaks in leucine and essential amino acids, you might consider maybe I should be using egg whites instead of whole eggs for, you know, for a more rapid digestion rate, absorption rate, etc. But generally speaking, you know, there's a study by Van Vliet and colleagues, there's a study by Begarian colleagues, whole eggs versus egg whites uh, in isonitrogenous conditions. There really just doesn't seem to be much of a difference there. So if you try to slow down a fast protein, like changing whey into a mixture of whey and casein, doesn't seem to really do much. If you try to speed up a very slow protein by going from a whole egg to an egg white, again, it doesn't really seem to do much. And when we look at the totality of the evidence here, uh, it just doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense to, to lose sleep over how quickly or slowly your proteins are digesting, whether we're talking about a daytime feeding or a nighttime feeding. The really important thing here with any protein feeding is, like I mentioned earlier, we need to make sure that there's enough leucine uh, that we're going to get a nice, robust spike in leucine, whether it happens very quickly or it takes some time to accumulate in the blood. that's not That doesn't seem to be a major concern. We just need to make sure that in the hours that follow that feeding, are we going to get a robust leucine response and essential amino acid response? As long as those are accumulating in the blood and reaching relatively high levels... Uh, then we should be initiating muscle protein synthesis and we should have the raw materials to build new muscle proteins. Um, So we definitely want to get out of that mindset of trying to really micromanage these amino acid responses and these absorption times. It's probably a situation where, as you often say, the juice isn't really worth the squeeze uh, and all the stress that goes into it. So we need enough leucine, we need enough essential amino acids we need good enough digestibility and absorption rates for this protein for allow, to, uh, to allow them to accumulate in the blood, but we don't need it to be optimized. We just need it to be good enough. It just ha- we just need enough accumulation of those things to make it work. So a faster peak, a higher peak, more leucine, more essential amino acids, they will not always translate to better outcomes in the endpoints that we really care about, which is building muscle mass. Uh, or, you know, w- insert whatever your goal happens to be. But mm-hmm. when it comes to hypertrophy, good enough is good enough when it comes to digestion rate, uh, absorption rate, digestibility, a- and the overall content of leucine and essential amino acids. So, uh, like I said, those are kind of the key things we're looking for. <laughs> and it's really not difficult to find a protein source that enables a maximal or nearly maximal response that we're looking for here. Uh, you know, uh, so I understand why people like to look into some of the mechanistic research on, you know, plasma leucine responses or plasma essential amino acid responses and try to extrapolate. I certainly understand why people try to extrapolate from some of those very short window studies looking at muscle protein synthesis. But when you look at the longitudinal studies looking at actually building muscle tissue over time, frankly, it just doesn't seem to matter that much. So uh, I had kind of briefly alluded to that when I was talking about nighttime protein, but I wanted to take a moment to elaborate and explain why I really don't sweat over it. And then once again, as I mentioned last week, even if we found that all of this stuff mattered a lot, uh, you could maybe use that information at breakfast, and then everything else goes out the window. Because when you're Eating a a particular protein source, if you have other things in the meal, other carbohydrate, other fat, other fiber, that's going to basically eliminate the utility of pretty much all the research I just mentioned uh, Mm -hmm. because it drastically alters uh, absorption times. And the same thing goes for any previous meal. So if you had breakfast at 9 in the morning and you're fretting over the speed of your protein source that you're going to consume for lunch at like noon or 1 p.m., it, you don't really know based on the research what the digestion absorption rate is going to be because it's going to be impacted by the previous meal anyway. Mm-hmm. So doesn't make a lot of sense to stress over. All right. Makes so sense to me. We're going to move on and the rest of the show basically is going to be a bunch of Q&As. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to let you go first with some of your Q&As and then I will revisit some of mine after.
1: Yeah, let's go for it. So... Um... First off for the listeners, apologies in advance. Uh allergy season has started in North Carolina and uh that affects me deeply. Uh so I'm on enough antihistamines right now to uh probably put a large buffalo to sleep uh and I'm still very stuffy. So I'm out of it. I'm probably going to be sniffling a lot. Uh this isn't going to be my best work. This is what we in the biz call managing expectations. Uh, but whatever let's uh let's go for it so anyway um starting with some questions from facebook grim re asks uh in terms of hypertrophy is there any significant difference between only doing one exercise targeting the particular muscle you're trying to train and five different exercises as long as volume and intensity are matched Uh, So overall, it shouldn't make that big of a difference as far as just kind of like overall muscle hypertrophy goes. There have been two or three studies looking at this, just training a muscle with only one exercise versus a combination of different exercises. And you don't tend to see uh, particularly notable differences in terms of just overall kind of global gross measures of uh, increases in muscle size. But what you do see pretty frequently um, is differences in terms of regional hypertrophy. So for example, um, if you only trained your quads with one quad exercise versus a variety of quad exercises, um, you know, your your total increase in quadriceps cross-sectional area will probably be pretty comparable regardless. But using a variety of exercises helps ensure that all four heads of the quadriceps uh are more evenly developed uh whereas like you know maybe you might have more say preferential vastus lateralis development uh, or vastus medialis development or something like that if you only used one exercise uh similarly um there's a study we've talked about on the podcast before looking at triceps growth following uh just doing skull crushers versus bench press versus a combination of skull crushers and bench press and the skull skull crushers and bench press were both independently pretty good for overall triceps growth uh, but the uh, skull crushers seem to be particularly good for the long head of the triceps which is biarticular uh, and the bench press seemed to be particularly good for the monoarticular heads of the triceps like the the two that don't cross the shoulder joint uh, and a combination of both uh, skull crushers and bench press seemed to be uh, necessary or at least beneficial to ensure that all of the heads of the triceps grew pretty robustly. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think you strictly need uh, a bunch of exercise variety just for just to get big in general. Um, but if regional hypertrophy uh, matters to you or, If ensuring even development of all of the heads of a particular muscle uh, matters quite a bit to you, then there might be benefits for more exercise variety. Uh, All right, Sean Noonan asks: I want to know why the SBS group only has four point four thousand members on Facebook, but goddamn Jim Stepani group has almost a hundred and twenty thousand. there's a clear answer to this uh the universe is fundamentally fair um if a individual has a larger audience or if something is more popular or successful that means that it's necessarily better so this is the day that we finally have to come clean and admit that jim Stepani is a far better source of information than we are dr oz is a better source of information than jim Stepani is and you can just look through the world. If someone is doing well, that means that they are doing. You know, they're being rewarded by God for for doing good stuff in the world. Uh, and that you know, I I think that's a worldview with really no complications, and it it comports well with reality. So can I can I
0: admit something? Yeah. Uh. So when I first got it like really into lifting, mm-hmm. it was um my my wrestling coach and I would lift together and we got really into it and we were doing all sorts of bodybuilding type stuff. Um and it was great. Like I, I really fell in love with fitness fr- from these these training sessions. And uh a lot of times what we would do is <laughs> we would just rip a page right out of uh I think it was muscle and fitness at the time where Jim Stepani was doing a ton of the content mm-hmm. and so like'm I'm, I'm not being ironic or like facetious whatsoever Jim Stepani fully got me into fitness like my only exposure to fitness was Jim Stepani programs and articles mm-hmm. and uh, I remember when I was like sixteen and I was like dude I want to get into the fitness industry because I love rigorous hard-hitting evidence-based content uh such as jim Stepani. yeah that's that's fully what got me into it
1: so can i admit something to you
0: yeah and to to everyone we are on on microphones
1: i actually don't know anything about jim Stepani. i i I know that he is a favorite punching bag uh of uh evidence-based fitness folks yeah i've not consumed any of his content my one and only exposure to him was, and, and I think this is still on the internet somewhere. He may have taken it off of YouTube, but I think it's still on Vimeo. And you know exactly what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, there is a video of him doing plyometric Smith machine bicep curls, uh, talking about how like the explosive contraction from like curling the curling the bar and throwing it up is going to be super good for biceps growth. Uh, and, and it's also very clear that he's reading off of cue cards that are off camera. And so it's one, a bizarre exercise. And two, it's delivered at a speaking cadence that no other human would ever use or has ever used. And it's like, it, it's it's the uncanny valley. Like he comes across as non-human in that yeah. video. Um, and so that was my only exposure to him. And I, I was just like, eh, you know what? Maybe not worth my time reading this guy's stuff. So Yeah. Yeah, I, I know people are are upset at him for various things. But quite frankly, I don't know and I don't care.
0: Yeah, I haven't been uh really engaged with that cinematic universe since I again, since I was like sixteen or seventeen. But I do recall uh thinking back, a lot of it was just like let's really lean into the fun interesting side of science
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know and like n- no like plyometrics are interesting for the types of adaptations they yield for athletes and so if you're involved in a a sport that prioritizes explosiveness like plyometrics are very cool like mm-hmm. they are a fascinating evidence-based training technique but you know, Jim would be the kind of guy who's like, yeah, but what if you needed this to have big biceps? Yeah. And that's yeah. not at all what they're for. But it was like, let's take a fun training method that is in the scientific literature and make it more of like a fitness bodybuilding magazine kind of topic. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do remember thinking I had to be super rigid with my meal timing. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking I had to be... Uh, one of the things he was really big on was like, oh, you you have to have the right uh, glycemic index value for your post-workout carbohydrates so that you can refuel. But like the program that I was doing that like he wrote, it's like you hit chest on Thursday and you've got like six days until you hit it again or like yeah. four days. And I'm like, yeah, I think I can have oats and still be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So it was just, um, it was a lot of stressing over the little details that need not be stressed over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was taking like, hey, let's look at this science that has a very specific application and just work that into what we're doing. So it it was, you know, uh, it was a great way, honestly, to to fall in love with exercise science more generally Mm -hmm. and to see all of these uh, kind of niche topics brought to you. Uh, But regrettably, they were brought to you in a way that was like, hey, have you tried worrying about this? And it was something I shouldn't have been worried about. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, All right, right, moving on. Uh, Amanda Casimir uh, says, bones, and specifically, is there any research on what type of loading, frequency, volume, and movement types are optimal for building or maintaining bone density? Um, And so, yeah. So just to start with, uh, it's hard to give a kind of like detailed dose response accounting of, all of those different variables and how they may relate to um, increasing or preserving bone mineral density uh, just because like there aren't that many of the types of studies you would need to, um, to look into that in a ton of detail. Like there, there are quite a few studies that are just like, Hey, we're going to have people do uh, like cardio versus resistance training for six months. And then let's see how those things affect bone uh, or there have been quite a few studies looking at, like, hey, we're going to do high-intensity or low-intensity resistance training for a while. Let's see how that affects bone. But, you know, there's, like, four different variables mentioned here. And there's, you know, there's not that much research looking at volume. There's not that much research looking at frequency um, or anything like that. And part of the reason for that, um, like, the, the reason why it's difficult to really... Uh, strictly quantify this stuff and also to run studies that would be necessary to to uh research the effects of exercise on bone health in depth like d- different dose response relationships is that you need to run a pretty long study to actually measure anything so uh for example if you're interested in say hypertrophy uh you recruit some untrained subjects have them train for about eight weeks and uh not only are they likely to grow quite a bit of muscle in eight weeks, but that might be long enough for you to actually be able to see large enough differential responses that you can measure them and quantify them and put a p-value on it and say like, oh yeah, these two things are actually different. Boom, we just learned something. Uh, With bone, since it adapts so much more slowly, um you typically need either much larger sample sizes or much longer study durations for just changes themselves to become measurable and even larger sample sizes or even longer studies for differences between groups to become large enough to become measurable like so you know instead of adaptations that take place over a matter of weeks to months we're talking about adaptations that take place over the span of months to years which is just inherently more challenging to study. Uh, but what I will say, uh, and, and this I think surprises some folks, there was a meta-analysis on this uh, that, that I can pull up uh, and put in the show notes that was looking at the impact of training intensity, like high load versus low load training on uh, bone mineral density in older adults. And I think a lot of people anticipate that high-intensity resistance training would be a lot better than lower-intensity resistance training, uh, just because, like, if you've been exposed to Wolf's Law, you're kind of aware of the fact that bone remodeling uh, is dependent on the magnitude of the stress placed on the muscle. So higher-intensity training, more intense muscle contractions, that's going to give you a larger stimulus for adaptation, right? Uh, But I think... So, ultimately, it doesn't seem like it matters that much. And I think one of the reasons why, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I think it's been a couple years, is I think people, um, one, don't exactly realize why resistance training is beneficial for bone health, uh, and two, uh, fail to appreciate just how fucking strong your muscles are. So, uh, the... The aspect of resistance training that is most beneficial for bone health is the compressive forces on the bone. Like basically muscle is contracting uh, and it's, it's spanning the length of a bone. Uh, maybe it's spanning two joints. Maybe it's uh, originating on a bone and inserting past the end of the bone. But basically when that muscle is contracting, it's putting compressive force uh, on the bone and that is the stimulus for bone remodeling. Cool stuff. Uh, And so I think a lot of people, um, you know, when we're looking at, say, optimizing squat biomechanics or something like that, we're generally quantifying external forces. So basically, what are the forces that the barbell is placing on the body that we then have to overcome? And so I think a lot of people think about bone remodeling from a similar paradigm, almost like you look at the external resistance And the sorts of forces that the external resistance is placing on the bones and the joints and you're like okay like that is what's causing the the compressive forces leading to bone remodeling but most of the compressive forces that your bones are feeling are actually just coming from the muscle contraction itself so for example if you're interested in uh, like forces on the femur uh, like compressive forces on the femur maybe they're greater in the squat than the knee extension because like you know you have the bar pressing down on your body like there are some external compressive forces uh, resulting from just the load of the bar itself but most of the compressive forces on the femur are just coming from the quads contracting really hard so it's not like there's an order of magnitude difference of compressive force on the femur from the squat versus the knee extension um so that's the first thing, like most of those forces are just coming from the the force of the muscle contraction itself, and then two, your muscles are very strong um like the human body is built in a way where we're we're designed for mobility more so than force output so for example uh I think this is just easiest to see with the bicep, like your bicep inserts very close to your elbow, so Uh, you know, it's like the, the length from your, like the distance from the middle of your elbow to your hand, is probably like 10 times greater than the distance from the insertion of your bicep to the center of the elbow joint itself. So essentially like, you know, if you were to curl 50 pounds with one hand, say, uh, your bicep is probably contracting with around 500 pounds of uh like that that's just how it has to work for you to be able to overcome that external resistance. Five hundred pounds of force is a ton of force. Like I, I don't think most people like if you can curl 50 pounds with one hand, I don't think it's going through your head like, oh, my biceps are producing four or five hundred pounds of contractile force right now. But they are. Uh and that's that's how basically all of your muscles at basically all of your joints work. Your muscles orig- originate and insert very close to the joints that they cross. Um, So they have to be contracting with an enormous amount of force to move an external resistance. Um, So, you know, even if you're doing relatively low intensity resistance training, your muscles are still contracting with a ton of force to move that resistance. And they're contracting with more force if it's a higher resistance. But you're putting a lot of compressive forces on your bones If you're doing anything that's really even remotely challenging within the realm of resistance training so my advice is basically just do resistance training (laughs) um and i'm sure there is an intensity somewhere that would be too low like you know if, if you're just doing single joint exercises and you're using weights that you can do for sets of 200 like yeah maybe that's not enough contractile force to lead to robust bone remodeling but if you're doing resistance training with any sort of load that becomes challenging after fewer than 20 or 30 reps, you're putting an enormous amount of compressive forces on your bones uh which seems to be more than sufficient for bone remodeling to either improve bone mineral density or preserve it uh, as you age. So yeah, um I I can't give a super, like, hyper-specific recommendation for optimal loading uh, because ultimately, like, one, as I mentioned originally, that research doesn't exist to really dial in a, a super optimized prescription. But two, and more importantly, I don't think that's necessary because if you're doing resistance training, you're getting the job done as far as preserving bone health goes. Um, Let's see. And then MH asks, uh, everything old is new again. What's a training or nutrition strategy from the past that you would like to see come back or that you think will come back or that you'd love to see come back? Uh, I I think we can both address this one. But uh, starting with me, I think that something that I would love to see come back is just kind of the old vibe of physical culture. And who knows how true this actually was like back in the day when it was happening happening concurrently but at least in terms of what has been preserved and passed down to us about like bodybuilding and strength sports and the whole like physical culture deal um like maybe pre-1950 or so uh is that a lot of it just seemed to be focused on just trying to improve and preserve general health and physical resilience. Um, there, there didn't seem to be quite as much of a focus. So like if you, if you talk to a physique athlete or a strength athlete, now you will very rarely hear them say like, yes, I'm, I'm doing this for my health. Like getting down to 5% body fat for a bodybuilding show, not the healthiest thing you can do. Uh, trying to, like, squeak every last kilo you can possibly get out of your deadlift maybe not the healthiest thing you can do. Um, And so, like, it it seemed like the entire purpose of people exercising back in the day, um, th- they kind of had a more holistic view of it, of, like, I want to look good, I want to be able to perform well in quite a few different physical capacities and that should just make me a more robust person improve my health yada 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 and somewhere along the line and I I wouldn't want to uh like posit a complete list of causes but I I do think like drug culture uh like steroid culture um was was a pretty large contributor to this um like I, I and you know probably um Probably visual culture as well, like the the drive to achieve more and more extreme looks to to kind of draw people's attention. I, I think that those were probably two large contributing factors to this. Um but yeah, like I, I think that the entire vibe around physical culture is less general health focused than it was before. But yeah, it, it used to just be like, yeah, this is something I like doing, makes my life better, makes me healthier. And I think that especially if you get into one specific discipline uh, a lot these days, I, I do think that that focus on general health and resiliency isn't there as much anymore. Um, And I, I would like to see that come back. I, I think that would be a good thing.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I'm racking my brain. I, I'm not really sure if I have a, a great answer for this, um, wh- whenever I think about things changing over time, uh, I, I kind of view it through the the sports nutrition prism. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you would do pretty good on the betting markets if you just said, what's popular now? And said, I think in 10 years, we're going to hate that. Uh, so... I would imagine that, you know, right now the the pendulum has swung quite a bit. If you go back, uh, you know, 20 years, the prevailing wisdom was, you know, high carb, moderate protein, quite low fat. And that pendulum has swung pretty hard to the point where now it's high protein, high fat uh quite low carbohydrate that seems to be kind of the uh the the flavor of the day in terms of nutrition so uh there there are many uh you know cultural things within physical culture like you mentioned that that could be uh improved upon you know it seems like back in the day people just had a lot more fun yeah. <laughs> with their training like it it seemed like there was a lot more camaraderie in gyms and people did it uh because they enjoyed it and it was almost like a, a club and uh th- there was a lot of unity in that. Uh man, nowadays it, it perhaps I've been too impacted by the animal pack advertisements, but <laughs> man, it, it sometimes it seems like people train these days to exercise their demons and it's like, yeah, that that was not how it was portrayed in the 70s and 80s. You yeah. know, that kind of golden era bodybuilding, it was like, hey, we all have similar interests. You want to be my friend? Sure. Like you want to yeah. spot me? You wanna like stand on my back while I do donkey calf raises? Like it was just yeah. There there are a lot of things like that where I think the the vibes can improve. It seems like it's gotten uh hyper, hyper, hyper competitive and it just has like a little tinge of negativity compared to compared to yesteryear. Um but but more focused on the nutrition side. I I expect that right now, this this big wave of all the focus being on protein and fat as really, really positive things, we're probably going to see over the next 10 years, things settling back to, I would expect, more similar to what people were doing in the 80s in terms of the general consensus for, hey, I'm getting into lifting. How should I eat? I think people are going to get away from the current trend, which is increasingly promoting you know, keto and carnivore and things like that. And and I, I should also mention that, like, I don't even think there's that, that, that many people who are actually doing it. I just think that seems to be the content that, that is getting shared around the most. Yeah. Like, the amount of carnivore diet content I see these days cannot possibly be reflective of the number of people actually eating a carnivore diet. I hope not. Because <laughs> I don't know a single person who's even tried it. Yeah. Uh, but everywhere I look on Instagram, it's, you know people eating a giant raw liver. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be my
1: answer if that counts. Yeah. Something else that I would love to see come back. Uh, and I, I don't think it ever will, but I, I think one of the things you touched on is that gym culture seemed to be a lot more communal back in the day and a lot less individualistic. And that's something I've seen just in my time since I started training. Um, the The invention of Bluetooth headphones and m p three players uh has been nothing but an unmitigated disaster for gym culture in my book um like and one one thing I'll note is this this is coming from my perspective um talking to female lifters who say that like being able to put on big noise cancelling headphones to project to people like hey, I'm not available to talk right now. Like, please don't interrupt my workout. Uh, you know, they very well may have a different perspective on this. Uh, but man, when I started training like eh, fif- 15, 16 years ago, um, you go in a gym and, you know, there there's music playing over the speakers, but like no one has earbuds in, no one has headphones on because, you know, the the best thing for listening to music was like, A Walkman or like a portable CD player, you know, you don't really want to have that in your pocket when you're working out And so there was I think just much more of a sense of camaraderie because If you're doing something between sets you're either staring at the ground or you're talking to people Uh, And most of the time you just talk to people and so The first half dozen gyms I trained in like I knew everyone we were all friends like sometimes we would hang out outside of the gym uh, you knew what was going on in their lives. Uh, it was a lot easier to ask for a spot because people were just kind of looking around, observing what was going on. Easier to make eye contact. Like people weren't as absorbed in in their own world, like listening to music or podcasts or whatever. Um, and yeah, I I feel like I feel like gyms now can feel like the the idea of like when small town people move to a big city and it's like. There are so many people here, yet I feel so alone. Like, I, I think that there's that vibe in a lot of gyms now. I think that's one of the the factors in the success of CrossFit, like, because it is. And, uh, like, fitness classes and, like, YMCA's. Like, I, I think that those are popular and not so much CrossFit anymore, but group exercise definitely continuing to grow in popularity. Um because it does give you that sense of camaraderie, that kind of communal environment. Like, hey, we're all kind of doing this. We're in it together. You can chat with, with the other people in your classes or in your box. Uh, and yeah, I, I I personally prefer that vibe much better. I wish it would come back, but I don't see gyms banning headphones. Uh, I wouldn't be in favor of them doing that. You know, people can live their lives however they want. But I, I do, in my opinion, that has been... A disaster for for the vibe of gyms um yeah but yeah it is what it is
0: all right so um let's see here i've got a question from grim re uh the question is is postprandial induced increase of muscle protein synthesis a strong indicator of hypertrophy uh in other words is there a significant difference uh in hypertrophy over the long term between eating two meals a day versus eating every three to four hours as long as protein and total caloric intake are matched um i view that as two very different questions um and i think uh that so the first question is is muscle protein synthesis after a meal is that a strong indicator or predictor of hypertrophy very easy the answer is no Uh, I'll link a paper in the show notes. It's a review paper by Wittard and colleagues. I I think I pronounce his name differently every time I say it, but that's okay. Um, But yeah, so in their uh, review paper here, it was called Making Sense of Muscle Protein Synthesis, a Focus on Muscle Growth During Resistance Training. Uh, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on this podcast before because I feel like I've been talking about it nonstop uh, elsewhere. Like I've written about this in mass many times, but there is this uh, kind of pervasive idea that muscle protein synthesis measured acutely is highly predictive of hypertrophy over time. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, Acute muscle protein synthesis measurements, uh, time and time again, do a fairly poor job of predicting longitudinal hypertrophy. Uh, You can make them better. So, you know, if you're looking at uh, muscle protein synthesis, in well-trained lifters who are doing a bout of exercise that they're relatively accustomed to, and you're measuring muscle protein synthesis for an extended period of time, that might be kind of predictive of hypertrophy over time, but certainly not perfectly predictive. You cannot treat those measurements as if they're synonymous with hypertrophy. But if you're looking at short Measurements, like we're talking like six hours or shorter, looking at muscle protein synthesis, uh, that's not going to tell you much about longitudinal hypertrophy over time, especially if you're looking at measurements done in untrained people or measurements in people doing a very unaccustomed bout of exercise because that acute muscle protein synthesis response is largely related to just repairing and remodeling existing proteins that are already there. So if you have a really damaging bout of unaccustomed exercise in untrained people who are not used to that type of muscle damage, uh, the muscle protein synthesis response really is not directly related to hypertrophy and is not going to be very predictive of hypertrophy over time. So whenever we actually have longitudinal evidence looking at hypertrophy, we should prioritize that rather than focusing exclusively on short-term studies looking at muscle protein synthesis. Now, part two of the question was, is there any difference over time comparing two meals a day versus eating every three, three to four hours? Uh, and that's something we've talked about on the show. There, I think there's pretty good evidence that three large protein feedings throughout the day is more effective than two for promoting hypertrophy. But when you increase from three to four or five or six, there doesn't seem to be much of a benefit there. So one meal a day is getting kind of popular. Um, That's a viable way to eat. I don't think it's optimal for hypertrophy. Uh, Time-restricted feeding, very popular. I personally wouldn't recommend a feeding window any shorter than eight hours because I do think it's valuable to get at least three protein feedings with at least a couple hours between them over a span of time that's eight hours or longer um all right did you have the last one you wanted to do
1: i do yeah so uh pleasant merit pawn on reddit uh says slash asks uh, conventional wisdom is that you need to balance push and pull exercises for shoulder health for example you need to do rows and pull-ups to offset bench and overhead press is there any research on this topic and what do you guys think of this idea? If someone wanted to do 20 sets a week of pressing, do they need to do 20 sets a week of pulling to lower their injury risk? So, um, just to start with, there is not, or at least I was unable to find good research looking at this. Um, so I, I spent a bit of time, like, you know, I, I didn't do a fully systematic lit lit search as if I were trying to do a systematic review on the topic. but I, I ran half a dozen PubMed queries, looked through the first several pages of results to see if I could find human evidence looking at one, the ratio of upper body pushing to pulling exercises uh, and and that and the relation of that to shoulder health or injury risk. Uh, and when that didn't turn up anything, I also just looked at, uh, upper body pushing to pulling strength ratios and whether research has found that to be predictive of shoulder health or injury risk. And I came up dry both places. Um, and specifically on the latter batch of research, just looking at upper body pushing to pulling strength ratios. Um, the, the most recent study on that I found from 2020, um, which, which I think, gives a good indication of where that literature is. Uh, In the introduction, it basically said, like, uh, it has been proposed that (laughs) if you have uh, excessive pushing strength relative to pulling strength, that might be uh, a a risk factor for shoulder injury. But then the, the thing cited for that sentence didn't link to human evidence showing that to be true. It's basically just, like, um, like expert sources have said that if you do see this, then maybe that's predictive of injury risk. Um, but no, like without any actual data cited to substantiate that claim. So that's basically the state of the literature. Some people say like, oh yeah, this might increase your injury risk, but then you say, where's the data? And, uh, as far as I can tell, it's not there. And if it does exist, I was unable to find it. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think that if you're very comfortable with the null hypothesis, um, you you would say that like oh yeah, th- this doesn't seem to be predictive of injury risk, upper body pushing to pulling strength ratios, um, how much pushing and p- how many pushing and pulling movements you do, how many sets you do. Um, there's not good evidence that that is predictive of uh, injury risk for the shoulder. Um, So, however, you know, the classic, classic nugget absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Uh, As far as I can tell, there's no research proving that that doesn't matter. It's just that there's not good human research on it in the first place. Um, So, like, I think that, uh, uh, so I think one of the reasons that the idea got so popular that you need to do a certain amount of pulling to offset the pushing you do. Um, I think that that came from the Vladimir Janda idea of the upper cross syndrome, um, which, as I understand it, has been pretty thoroughly debunked at this point. Um, however, uh, what I'll also say is I think that the, I think that idea was popularized not in totality, but at least in part, by Eric Cressy back in the day, writing for T-Nation. And I, uh, I I tend to think that Eric is a good source of information uh, for various things. And specifically, he mostly trains baseball players. And what he said is that, like, hey, when these baseball guys come in and we have them do more rows and more pull-ups, they seem to have fewer shoulder issues in the subsequent baseball season. Um, And I have no reason to doubt him on that. But what I will also say is that something, the demands on your shoulders playing baseball are way greater than the demands on your shoulder when you're just lifting weights. So it might simultaneously be true that doing more pulling exercises is good for making the shoulders of baseball players a bit more robust. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that will have a huge impact on injury risk in the gym, because uh, those are those are two very different pursuits. Um, the other thing I'll say is that actually I have two more things to say. One of them is that uh, Boris Shako, as I understand it, pretty good powerlifting coach, um, and you know, as one could use the argument from authority, saying, "Well, Eric Cressy says this is a good thing to do." You could also use the argument from authority to say like, well, you can look at Shaco's programs. He doesn't have his guys do a ton of rowing. Uh, and best I can tell, his lifters haven't traditionally had a catastrophic uh, rate of shoulder issues in spite of doing a ton of benching and very, very minimal uh, rowing. So, uh, you know, you could you could use that kind of counterpoint as long as we're in the realm of arguments from authority. The other thing I'll say is i also think the uh the idea that you need to do a certain amount of pulling for each set of pushing you do and that the ratio of upper body pushing to pulling strength is super important i i think part of that may come just kind of from reasoning from analogy Uh, so you go back not not even all that long ago maybe like 20 years ago or so um there was a lot of research looking at quad to hamstring strength ratios. Uh, and there were some suggestions that if you had way stronger quads relative to your hamstrings that might predispose you for uh, risk of ACL tears and hamstring strains. Um, I haven't checked in on that research in a long time. I don't know if that's still the current, uh, consensus view within, within the field. Uh, but but that was something that a lot of people were concerned about, and there was some preliminary research suggesting that that may be the case, that if your quads are way too strong and or your hamstrings are way too weak, you might strain your hamstrings more frequently, might tear your ACLs more frequently. And so I wonder if some of the concerns around shoulder health were just kind of reasoning from analogy based on that research, where if strength ratios across the knee seem to matter uh, to some degree for injury risk, Maybe that's a generalizably true phenomenon that you can generalize to other joints. Um, and so, you know, that that may be one of the things uh, motivating the reasoning behind being concerned about this, uh, but as far as I'm aware, there's... Like like I said to start with, as far as I'm aware, there's not good human evidence validating that those that, that you need to have those concerns. And also I'll note that the sorts of injuries that you might see at the shoulder tend to be quite a bit different than than what you'd be looking at with quadricep to hamstring strength ratios. Like the the direct analogy for a hamstring strain would be a bicep strain, for example. Um you know, not just kind of general shoulder ouchies. And the analogy for an ACL strain would be some sort of, uh, uh, strain or tear of the ligaments of the elbow. Um, like those would be the, the direct analogies you, you could draw from that. Um,
0: and before a physical therapist gets angry and corrects us, uh, we're talking about spraining ligaments, not straining them.
1: Yes, correct. Uh, but yeah, so I, I mean, like, the the sorts of injuries that you would directly analogize from the quadriceps to hamstring strength ratio stuff aren't even the types of injuries that people are concerned about uh, when, when you talk about shoulder injuries that you might get from lifting or other sports. So I, I don't know that the analogy really holds up. And ultimately, reasoning from analogy is a very weak form of evidence. Uh Ideally, you would have direct human research on the thing you're interested in. So yeah, I, I mean, my my general take on it is that for most people who are lifting, it certainly doesn't hurt to do more pulling. Um, you know, a little bit of extra bicep work, you're gripping onto the implement, might grow your forearms a little bit, having a jacked back, huge lats, huge traps. It's a very cool physique, and I'm not aware of any lifting related pursuit where that would be a hindrance to you um so yeah, I mean i I think that if you are concerned that you need to do a certain amount of pulling per set of pushing you do i I don't think i I don't think that's gonna hurt you at all. um I think that's a a you know if even if it does turn out to be an incorrect idea, the direct applications you would draw from that idea I don't think are particularly deleterious. So if that does turn out to be misinformation, it's not harmful misinformation, so I don't care that much. (laughs) Um, But as best I can tell, there's not good, reliable human data to suggest that you need to do a set of pulling per set of pushing in order to preserve shoulder health.
0: Good stuff. Uh, Time got away from me a little bit during this episode. Uh, Maybe it was just too much reminiscing on my my old days reading all Jim Stepani's articles (laughs) in in muscle and fitness. Uh, So I I know that the cliffhanger ending uh, is not a fan favorite, but I did have a nice little answer presented. Someone was asking about whether or not protein requirements scale to total body mass or fat free mass. That's a common question and I will answer that, but we simply do not have time for it this episode. So in, in a, in the near future i'll be talking a little bit about whether or not protein requirements should be just kind of stable you know for all people or if we need to be scaling those to body weight or or fat free mass and it's a really interesting question because there's surprisingly not that much evidence looking at it directly um you know there's one paper that i can think of mcnaughton in in 2016 that said hey We're going to kind of do a median split and see if the people with a lot of fat-free mass need more protein than the people with less fat-free mass to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Uh, But for a lot of reasons, I really don't think that that particular study is sufficient to really get at the root of the question there. Uh, But we'll we'll get into that in a future episode. uh, For now, I'm going to play us out with a humble travel recommendation for a place that I've never been to. So I started watching uh, the 72 cutest animals on Netflix. Uh, it's a really gripping show. A uh, lot of drama. My my girlfriend and I were watching it, and our jaws hit the floor a couple times with some of their decisions. It's it's really controversial. But uh, if you're looking for something that's lovely to watch and not going to require a lot of thinking or. Uh, you know, not going to induce bad vibes. Seventy-two cutest animals is as uh, as nice as it sounds. But in the course of watching that show, I learned about a place called Rotnest Island in Australia. This is a very small island. It's only nineteen square kilometers, which is about seven point three square miles, off the coast of Western Australia. You might be wondering why I'm recommending it and why I would bring it up on this show. Well. The quokka is the only animal, or the only mammal, I should say, that is native to Rotnest Island, uh, and they can be found almost everywhere on the island. Uh, This island supports the largest known quokka population. And in this small island, 7.3 square miles, there are about 10,000 to 12,000 of these little guys running around. This was a Uh, a huge fan favorite of the show when Greg mentioned Quakas and in the stronger by science group, people were sharing all their favorite pictures of these cute little animals. Uh, so, and and
1: there are no bad pictures.
0: No, they, they all look like the cutest little fuzzy smiling, uh, little buddy with very chubby cheeks. That is what they all look like. Uh, very, very cute animal. Shockingly not ranked well in the show. Uh, I, that's one kind of content warning. If you're defensive about Kuwakas, maybe you don't want to watch that show because they are not number one and they are not close. That is unconscionable. I'm only two episodes in, so it's it. they'll only go down from here. Um, but an interesting thing related to the show, um, I'm thinking that our, our Dutch listeners, all three of them out there, are probably not going to want to visit uh, Rottnest Island. I think the... Um, The cuteness of the Kuwaka just does not seem to be recognized in the Netherlands. And the reason I bring that up, on the show, they mentioned that Dutch sailors uh, landed there on several occasions. Um, This is kind of from the show, kind of from from Wikipedia. (laughs) Uh, But around the 17th century, there were a lot of Dutch sailors around there, and they actually gave the island its name. Uh, But it's basically a translated version of Rats Nest Island. Uh, They saw all of these adorable, cute little quakas with their smiles and their chubby cheeks. And they said, look at this giant nest of rats. That is what we shall call the island. I'm so mad. Yeah. So that's that's fucked. In a way, though, it's kind of nice because uh, our show uh, didn't get the best reviews coming out of the Netherlands when we first released it. That was the impetus for the ongoing feud that is really, uh, as contentious as ever. It's never really cooled off, but you know, if you negatively review a quokka, then I'd say, sure, negatively review my show, you know, yeah. like I, that, that's kind of a, a nice thing we have in common with quakas, I think. So, um, I highly recommend going to this Island. I will go there someday and and hang out with the quakas, but, uh, If you're Dutch and you think quakas look like rats, it might not be the place for you because that's about 12,000 rats and they are everywhere, according to the show. All right. So I think that does it for this episode of the podcast. As always, thank you for listening. We will be back in a week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.